the Making Sense of Life podcast, episode six. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Andrew Horton and Dr. Sunil Raheja. Sunil, thank you ever so much for being with us again today. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, as a psychiatrist, why are we looking today at joy? Usually something that you look at as a psychiatrist is depression, which we'll touch on as well. But why, why, why do you have something to say about joy as well? That's a, it's a very in- interesting point you make there, Andrew. Uh, I've been a psychi- I've worked as a psychiatrist for goodness as many years as I can, as long as I care to think about, really. But uh, I qualified as a psychiatrist in 1996, past my postgraduate psychiatry exams then. But having said that, I don't recall a single lecture or class that I ever attended on dealing with the positive in life rather than the negative. So all my training has been about disease and illness and what goes wrong with with the mind wow. rather than actually what are the um what are the circumstances what are what the things that lead to joy and happiness uh and i think there's a, that's a big big error that's a big big gap that we've got mm. in, in our understanding and why is that i mean sorry i've sort of pointing the question back at you but why is that and, <laughs> and it reminds me of a of, of, of a joke I came across once where you have this um, man who's um, under this uh, at, late at night and under a, a lamppost frantically looking look, looking around and uh, searching you know, around, around a lamppost and uh, another man comes up to him and says can I help you he says yes please help me I've lost my keys and uh, the guy says okay yeah sure I'll help you and so they start looking for a little while and they're, they're getting nowhere. And and so he says to, to the man who's, who's lost his keys, he says, where did you last see them? Where do you think you might have lost them? He says, well, I think I lost them. I think I dropped them in the bushes that are that are way over there in the, in, in the distance. And so the other guy is rather confused. He says, you think you dropped them in the bushes over there, but why are we looking here under the lamppost? And he says, well, the light is better here. Yes, <laughs> and I think something has happened over the last 30, 40 years in psychiatry and psychological research that has tended to focus much more on the negative. Not to say that it shouldn't. I mean, I'm not knocking it. I think that's fine. We need to, I mean, you know, things like depression, anger, anxiety, sickness, we need to focus on. But there's something that has gone off, off balance. So, um, I was looking at some at somebody called Martin Seligman, who's a psychologist, looked at the psychology abstracts from 1967 to 2000 on the subjects of anger, anxiety and depression. 
and um, he came across this for anger. It was just over 5,500 articles on anger. This, this was written between 1967 to 2000. Another 41,000 uh, articles on anxiety mm. and a uh, 54,000, just over 54,000 articles on depression produced between 1967 to 2000. Well, in that same period of time, he found there were 415 articles on joy, 1,700 articles on happiness, and just over 2,500 articles on life satisfaction. So that's a staggering ratio of approximately 21 to 1 in favor of the negative over the positive. And we are surrounded by so much negativity. I mean, I've heard the phrase, you know, you've heard of CNN, okay, the news channel. Well, it's actually constant negative news. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, and so there, there needs to be something to focus on, on the positive. And, uh, and this is where I particularly got interested in the whole area of positive psychology, which, uh, which, which stresses that human goodness and excellence are as authentic as disease, disorder and distress. On the uh, drsnill.com website, there is um, a fascinating uh, 12-minute video with uh, Sean Aker uh, talking about what he calls the happiness advantage. Mm. And I'd really commend our uh, our listeners to, to go and look at that um, because he really makes a strong case about how all the research shows that only 10% of what is happening in your external world contributes to your overall sense of long-term happiness. Ten percent. Say that Ten percent. Yes, ten percent, uh, and that's. I mean, that 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 is staggering, really. You know, that is so different to how we normally think. It's so easy to live in. You know, we live in the if only mindset. So if only I had that job, or I didn't have that job, or if I was married to that person, or not married, or if I had children, or didn't have children, or had that gadget, or that toy. You fill in the blank. Whatever the if only his syndrome, then I would be happy. Mm. That's that's one of the lies we tell ourselves, and. The problem is that our tendency when we get something we've always wanted is to then, you see, what we do is we normalise it. So the baseline rises. A relatively trivial example that comes to my mind is I can still remember the excitement I felt. And I remember I can remember it now if I shut my eyes. I can remember exactly where I was when I received my very first email. Right. It, it was it was amazing. It was, it was sometime it was towards the end of... But it was about, I think about 1999, late 1990s, and somebody received, and I received an email from them. I was amazed. I thought this is fantastic. I don't know if you know, by the way, that uh, Bill Clinton, when he was in his presidency, received a total of two emails. Really? Yeah, two emails. Wow. So, and that was exciting then. Yeah, that was yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And now, <laughs> what do you think? You know, and now emails are, are a curse and a bane for all of us. You know, and if you think about it, if we could explain our lifestyle. And we could explain to them what to, what we you know, the things that we have to our grandparents or our great grandparents, the things that we can do. The fact that you can the fact that you can listen to me on your if you know some of you are probably listening to me on, on your iPhone as you're driving along. I mean, that is absolutely staggering. Or that you can with with your phone, you can communicate with people anywhere in the world. I mean, if if, if we could tell our grandparents that they would be amazed. They would think that we're living in heaven. And if you looked at the advertising, say, for the iPhone 3, mm. say just whatever it was, five, six years ago, and the world it was offering you, you would think you'd be in heaven. <laughs> but now we've got the iPhone 6, yeah. and we're definitely still not in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> like that. So that's the problem, you see, with looking to circumstances to bring you happiness. That's why the figure is so low as 10%. So 
what, what the psychologists say that our overall level of happiness is from a simple equation of what he calls the biological set point plus your life circumstances plus your voluntary activities. So if you like, and just, 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 just hang in with me there, okay? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Okay. That biological set point is your genetic capacity for happiness, that the level that you normally return to after your, your, you know, your positive or negative emotional experiences. And, you know, they've, they've studied um, um, identical and fraternal twins. And that accounts, they say, for about 40% of your overall happiness. And I have to confess to you, for most of my life, my set point has been a lot lower. And I've been a glass half empty kind of person. Mm. And I've, I've mentioned on, on a previous podcast as well um, about how when we had this exercise about giving each other nicknames as a family. And my children gave me the nickname of Puddle Glum, yeah. which really pulled me up short because... Um, Puddle Glum, if you don't know, is a character from the C.S. Lewis um, story, The Silver Chair. And he's a very, um, he's a caricature, caricature of pessimism and gloomy fortitude. And he's always very, very negative. Whatever they say, he's the, he's the yes, but kind of person. You know that kind of person, I'm sure. Um, but, and, but, you know, and f what people used to think was that, you know, if, if you're a glum, negative person, then that's what you're destined to be for the rest of your life you know it's a bit like um y there's no point trying to be a happier person it's, it's as futile as trying to be a taller person mm. but no actually uh, research has shown that actually that set point is changeable and i and i would vouch for it because um again people are often surprised when i tell them that i'm by, i'm by nature pessimistic and negative um but i would say well i've had to do a lot of work on it because what you see on the outside is not necessarily far from it what's on the inside and so they say so you've got that biological set point, but then he calls about the voluntary activities, the way that we train our brains to be more positive. And, and that's what's so intriguing, that you can actually train yourself. So in the same way that you can train yourself to become physically fit, you know, so you, you do the exercise, you eat the right foods, okay, you can train yourself to be a more positive uh, and happier person. So... So now, why are you working on becoming happier? Great question, Andrew. I think one of the things is is that it's not much fun being miserable. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, it's not much fun, and it's not much fun for your family. It's not much fun for the people around you. Um, and we're going to come on it later on. But uh, from a biblical Christian perspective, God commands us to be happy people. It's actually a commandment. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that a little bit, a little bit later on. But uh, yeah, it's a, so I want to be. And and if you want to talk about on a productive sense, happier people are more productive. Yeah. They uh, they live longer. They get more out of life. Um, yeah, I can't. I mean, the only advantages I think of being a miserable negative person are that you stay as you are. And maybe you don't face the things you want to face. I mean, so you have stability, but not much happiness. <laughs> so. so what was uh, it? Sorry, just to say, and obviously we, I, I don't, just a quick say, because I'm sure we'll get emails about this as well, is that obviously there is clinical depression and there are things like if, if you are, you know, people do, do go through uh, the dark night of the soul. They do go through periods of great um, suffering and stress and clinical depression. So I'm talking more here about the generalized unhappiness in society as opposed to clinical depression. I just want to make that, 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 that distinction there. Okay, so something I perhaps, and perhaps some of our listeners might not really uh, fully understand is the difference between happiness 
and joy. So you want to be a happier person, but how does that relate to to joy as well, Sunil? Yes, that's great. I'm I'm really glad you raised that. Again, just putting our listeners to the website again on drsunil.com, there are... So there's a fascinating and again, if you're having a, a tough day, you feel you're being stressed, you feel stressed out or overwhelmed or just miserable. I would really encourage you to go to the website and to just type in the search for joy and you'll see that there is a four minute video. Just take four minutes out of your time and watch this guy called Nick Viewcheck. And I'll tell you straight off. Nick Viewcheck is a man who was born with no arms and no legs. And yet he is one of the happiest persons, the most joyful persons I've ever come across mm. and uh, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great video to watch but going back to your question what do we mean by joy so there's something about happiness happiness if you like depends on happenings yeah. Okay? yeah so when good things happen I feel happy mm. okay whereas joy I would say something much richer and much deeper um, C.S. Lewis says there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious I think that what he's talking about there is joy. And what I would argue is that all of us are on a long life quest for lasting fulfillment and joy. Mm. Now, whether we recognize it or not is another matter, but there is a deep hunger in the human soul. And that hunger makes us very fragile and very vulnerable. You know, it's almost like we're in a no-win situation. So joy, if you like, can be seen as an ache for, for the future. Now, if you think about it, people get very nostalgic about the past. Yeah. You know, it was the good old days. Things were so much easier then. Well, that's all a lie. But joy is experienced in the here and now. And this is one of, one of the fascinating things about joy is that longing for joy is actually more satisfying than anything I can get in this life. Right. Just that hunger for it is satisfying in its own regard. Um, and when I think about my own life, I think that, you know, that's what I was being on, on, on a search for. Um, there's a video, another video just to, to direct uh, our listeners to called Just As I Am that's on the suggested posts on the website. And that really goes through my own struggle uh, in my late teens and early t- 20s for that, for that joy. Um, as well as um, there's another video as well about growing up between two cultures. We call, it's called Third Culture Kids and the Search for Home. Mm. Again, it, it, what I'm trying to get across here is that this is deep rooted in all of us. And, I, and as we said earlier on, we express this search for joy in that famous comment that we all tell ourselves, if only, yeah. if only, and you fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, there is an if only. Okay, mm. But really, I'd say that that is hunger and longing for something that we think will give us joy if only this happened then i would be finally happy then i would be content that's a really profound realization isn't it Sina? yeah and and the longing can be so intense that even that even having the desire realized still leaving still leaves you with still more longing um and again i, I, I can try and give you some of my own sort of um personal journeys with that and i think all of us can have have got our own sort of personal journeys and uh, i a bit of a self-revelation here and uh, i don't know what some of our listeners will think of this but i will mm-hmm. i will tell you it now uh i was uh, one of my earliest recollections goes back to the days of being a football fan right. and uh, as a seven-year-old boy i was mesmerized by a particular football team called leeds united they captured my imagination and I was full of joyful expectation because they were going to win national trophies and championships. 
And then I, I remember because I, I checked this up. It was in 1973. Right. They got to the FA Cup final and they were playing at what was a relatively minor team called Sunderland. And by all intents and purposes, on paper, they should have won. And they lost. Oh. And I was devastated. Oh. <laughs> I, I was totally. And 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 then it got worse. That was 73. And then in 74, I was wanting to support the England England football team for the World Cup. And they lost, I think it was that year, they lost to Poland, I think it was. And they didn't get through. And in 78, they lost again. They failed to qualify again. And I just found this incredibly painful. I mean, this is, this is I mean, on the scale of things, I'm sorry. I know people go through terrible suffering. This is, this is not suffering at all. But, you know, I said this is minor surgery and major surgery. It's a good example, though. But, you know, if you think about, um, if you think there is minor surgery and major surgery, but if it's happening to you, it's all major surgery. <laughs> So, so I basically just completely switched off and totally about foot, looking to football for my joy. And then I was reminded about this uh, when I became a psychiatrist because I had patients in their teens. And I remember one particular guy who I met who had what's called borderline personality disorder, which is uh, a very unfortunate condition. And he would tell me that when he had these intense periods of boredom and intense periods of emotional intensity and and, uh, and and anger and frustration with life and everything. And I looked at his arms and his arms were covered with cuts. Mm. And he told me that he had a favourite football team. And when that favourite football team lost their matches or didn't get through, he would cut himself. Mm. And I remember another time with um, uh, talking to uh, s some friends who went, who, who, who went to a church in central London. And they told me how, again, once again, one particularly year when England again uh, I think they got through to the World Cup finals but then lost in as they often do in the mm -hmm. preliminaries mm -hmm. that people were coming to the church literally saying my life has lost all meaning and purpose wow. because England have are not going to get through to win the World Cup so putting, putting your hope in a football team in, in 11 men running around a, a grass pitch and the result of how many pools are based on that. And you only have to look at, at the way football is. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not completely knocking football. Uh, I've, in fact, actually, I went to my first football match this year with my son, actually. We went to watch um, Blackburn Rovers versus Reading wow. and uh, with my brother. He got some tickets. So, so I'm not knocking football completely. But there is something when you put all your hope and expectation, which is what you see a lot of uh, with, with that intensity of emotion. And I, th I would say as we get older, we find more adult ways to deal with our longings. But those longings are just as real. But they make us, as I said, incredibly fragile, incredibly vulnerable. We start doing things and making decisions which we may later regret. OK, so what about moving from that disappointment to joy, a general sense of uh, movement from disappointment to joy. Tell me about that, Sinal. Yeah. I think one of the persons who's really studied this really well is C.S. Lewis again. Obviously, we, we refer to him a lot. And I've got this fascinating quote, which I'm just going to read out to you from Lewis. Oh. Uh, and, he's, and, he, and he talks about this, uh, about this hunger for joy. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. I mean, that's a lot of words there. But he's really hitting, hitting on something, I think you'd agree, Andrew, about this intense search for joy and, um, and the fact that that joy is a pointing to, uh, to us to our true home. As you say, yes, you, you, you try and get satisfaction from earthly desires and earthly um, stimuli. But as you say, it's, it's really focusing on, on, on our eternal perspective, isn't it, that's important? Yes. And, you know, so our hearts are hungry for joy. We think, as I said, you know, if our life circumstances change, then we will be happy, happier. But um, and as, as I just mentioned, you know, as children, we look to all sorts of things, football and all sorts of things. The other huge area which we haven't really touched on is is the whole area of romantic love. Of course, of yes. Of course. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, for me as a teenager growing up in an all-boys school in England, that was a huge subject. Mm. Boys talk a lot about that, teenage mm. boys. And it still is for anyone growing up. And, you know, um, there, there's a poem that I came, a very short poem I came across. It says, In spring, a young man's thoughts turn to love. For summer, autumn, winter, see above. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, and you know at the beginning of the 20th century Freud described religiosity as pent up sexuality however it's probably more accurate to say that sexuality is pent up relig religiosity and the desire for spiritual experience so that hunger for joy the Bible would argue and I would argue is actually the desire for spiritual experience. I think also that we spend a lot of time and energy focusing on these um, kind of earthly hopes and that sort of thing, don't we? we, we... And they're good things. This is the problem. They're not bad things. They're good things. You know, Lewis points that out. You know, these are good things. The problem is we're expecting too much, yeah. too, too much of that, really. Um, so Tim Keller talks about a joy vacuum, a black hole that nothing in, in this world seems to fill. Um, and he, you know, he, he talks very helpfully of two categories of what the human heart does to deal with this hunger for joy. Mm. He calls them naive primary strategies and precarious secondary strategies. So if you think about the naive primary strategies, OK, now, you know, if we assume that we've not had an enormously unhappy childhood, most of us start believing that it's relatively simple and straightforward to find lasting happiness. So I'm from an Asian culture, so South Asian culture. So the basic message is to find happiness, you need to find, you need to take on the role you've been given. So in other words, do your duty to find happiness. Work hard, be a good husband, uh, be a good student, be a good husband or wife, be a good son or daughter. Mm. It's assuming that the role you've been given is where you'll find your happiness. Right. And that works to a point. It's, and it's worked for centuries in many ways because we people haven't had all the choices that they have now exactly yeah. so in that sense it, it's got a place but it's not enough you see 
And in more contemporary cultures, uh, and what is so prevalent through popular media, media, the message is that you'll be happy if you create the role in society that you want. So, you know, discover or create your dream and then go and make it happen. Okay. Mm. You know, but, but, you know, but what happens, you want to go and make it happen. But what you find is that life is full of disappointments and failures. We're going to probably, we're going to talk about that more in, in another podcast, but mm. disappointments and failures in a sense, pull us up short. You know, we've had this desire that we're going to, I don't know, make our millions or get that perfect career or um, have that fantastic marriage and family. And then things happen. We yeah. begin to get older. We begin to feel our bones creaking and aching. It can happen in an instant as well, can't it? You know, you could have an accident at work or in the street or something like that. It can yeah. make, you, make you have a disability or something like that. So you can't do the... Yeah be in the sort of the football team you wanted to be in or that sort of thing you know things yeah. can happen in an instant we don't know yeah. are going to happen and it, you know and it, the first time maybe it dawns on us is that maybe our f- favorite football team loses or we break up with somebody in a, in a relationship we really care about and you know as we get older we're very good at hiding from others and even from ourselves just how how you know how desperate pointless and meaningless meaningless life looks now because we haven't got what we wanted mm. so that's one way that's if you like um that's that's one of the prime naive primary strategies. But the other is is when success arrives, when we get what we want. You know, I remember that I remember my own case. I I, I finally became a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS in May two thousand and one. Okay, oh. many years ago, and I remember thinking, "Wow, I have finally reached the top of the ladder." I mean, I started medicine in nineteen eighty three. And at some points in my medical career, I thought I, I mean, in my undergraduate training, I thought I might never make it. Uh, the only exams I passed first time as an undergraduate were finals, and it was a long, hard slog. At one point, it, it was touch and go whether I would be allowed to continue. And then in May 2001, I could look back and I could say, wow, I reached the top, as it were, in terms of medical career. I became a consultant. But you know, Andrew, you know the biggest sense I had at that point in May 2001? I had this profound sense of emptiness, a profound sense of, is that all there is? Is this all it's about? Um, what do you expect at the top of the ladder? Well, was, was there anything you defined know, that you expected? It's funny, that? isn't it? It's, 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 it, it, I, I'll be personal again. It, it, I'll go back to another personal anecdote, really. I, I remember when I was, uh, I can't remember how old I was. I, was I, think, I think I must have been in primary school. And I, we had these math textbooks, and I think I can't remember whether it was the yellow or the brown. It was, but let me say, let me say, I had the yellow textbooks. I had the yellow math textbook, and I saw the older children had the brown math textbooks, mm. and I was, used to think, "Wow, they look so big, and they look so confident. I can't wait till I'm as old as they are, and I'll have the brown math textbooks because then I know I will have arrived." And I remember getting to the brown textbooks, <laughs> whatever it was, a year or two later, and thinking. I still feel the same. Mm. I don't feel any different. And I think there was something about that, really, in the sense of you, you, you set these goals for yourself, you have these aspirations, and then you arrive and you think, well, actually, I'm the same person. So that's the naive primary strategies that uh, Tim Keller uh, raises there. But what other things? Uh, are there secondary strategies as well? Yes, sir, Andrew. So, so we've got the naive, strategy, naive strategies, and they're naive in that they're both too simplistic. You know, do your duty, achieve your, achieve your dream. Um, because they have to do with things that have to go right in our lives for us to be happy. But 
As we've said, relying on your circumstances for ultimate happiness is doomed to failure because of experiences of failure or success. But then there are, if you like, the secondary precarious strategies. And the first of these Keller calls the switch strategy. So you move from one cultural myth of happiness and joy to the opposite. So you think, well, this isn't working, so let me try something different. And, and again, a, a personal example, I, I remember a boy in my class at school when I was around, again, it's hard to remember, maybe 14 or 15. And he was an intensely religious Sikh who worked hard, who wouldn't say boo to a goose, who studied diligently and who never seemed to put a foot wrong. And then the next year, the new term started in September and suddenly he completely changed. He removed his turban. He topped taking any interest in his studies. He decided he was going to live carefree. He started hanging around. He became one of the cool lads who started smoking, who started just and, and just living, you know, a very sort of licentious life, really. And it was such a change that many of us wondered, is this the same person? And although he never, he never talked about it, our sense was that he decided he was going to major, make a major switch in his life. I've never found out what happened to him, but um, that was that was uh, that was fascinating. Um, another example is, is the so-called midlife crisis. And again, our friend C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says the long, the long, dull, monotonous years of middle aged prosperity or middle aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather for the devil. And again, you sort of wonder about that with um, with the biblical example of, uh, of King David again. Mm. And and as 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 the passage says uh, in the Old Testament about how at the time when kings go to war, David chooses to stay back and not do the things that God calls him to do, and then basically takes a nap, takes it easy, goes to the top of the roof of of where he of, of his palace and sees a, a beautiful woman bathing. He lusts after her and commits adultery, commits murder, and it, you know, in a sense, the hardest point of his life really. Uh, but if you like. He makes that switch. And the second, but that's said so that the first strategy, if you like, is that switch strategy. The second is what Keller calls a frantic strategy. And that says, because the primary strategy of doing my duty or discovering my dream is not working, I need to try harder. So you put in the hours, you, you know, I've got a, the problem is I'm not working hard enough. So you put in the hours, you give your best in terms of time, energy, and effort. You become so, so busy. But what the problem is that what you're doing is you're creating a black hole that nothing can fulfill. And again, that is when I look back, that, that, is, that is what I was going through at my, uh, at my time, particularly my intense spiritual search in my late teens. Again, that's on the video just as I am under suggested posts on the website. And I remember that was an intense time because I, 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 I was studying hard, I was trying to do all the right things and just feeling this incredible sense of emptiness, which which, you know, this black hole that nothing in this world could fulfill, be it socialising, be it fitness, be it doing my studies. So that, that's a, a frantic strategy. And the third strategy Keller calls the cynic strategy. And, you know, if you, if you, do you remember that, um, the, the, the parable, that was it, the, the, the parable of, of, of the fox and the sour grapes? The fox is trying to get the grapes and um, basically he can't reach the grapes. So what he tells himself is that the, the, the grapes probably didn't taste very nice anyway. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? And unfortunately, that can be the other way that we handle the disappointments in life. We develop this sort of cynical thing. Well, everything's fake. Everything is illusion. Mm. And you, maybe you see that in some, you know, you see that in, uh, in religious thinking as well. You see that within Hinduism, that everything is Maya. Uh, Buddhist, Buddhists talk about detachment, uh, that everything is, you know, we need to detach ourselves from everything. But, you know, Andrew, I think 
in the Bible, in the biblical scripture, we don't see that at all. Um, yes, don't put all your investments in this world, but that doesn't mean to say that there is not real, lasting, fulfilling joy and happiness awaiting you. Because, you know, what happens is that we, we cut ourselves off. Um, to shield ourselves, we make fun and find fault of those who still are looking for this happiness. We say they're naive. We say and they may be naive. We we say that they're that that they're, they're, they're too they're too romantically minded. But but the problem is when you do that, when you become cynical, a part of you dies. And again, just quoting Lewis again, he says, "To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal." Wrap it, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so that's, you know, that's... That longing for joy is pointing us to that longing for God, to that longing for a relationship, because it's in him that we find our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate happiness. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.